The following programming is sponsored by the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. The views expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of this station, its management, or Beasley Media Group. Pro-Life Federation. Positively Pro-Life brings you inspirational stories, important legislative updates, and informative interviews as we restore and strengthen a culture of life. I'm Bonnie Finnerty, Education Director at the Federation, and I am joined by my distinguished colleague, Maria Gallagher, our Legislative Director. Hello, Maria. Hello, Bonnie. It's great to be with you today. And it's great to be with you today. Now, one thing that I've discovered during my time with the Federation is that some of the strongest voices in the pro-life movement are those women that know the deep wound of abortion. Our guest today is one such woman. Star Parker has used her personal experiences and grief to do amazing things. As founder and president of CURE, the Center for Urban Renewal and Education, STAR is bringing new ideas to policy discussions on how to transition America's poor from government dependency to self-sufficiency, all while respecting the fundamental right to life. In addition, Maria will provide an update on the Women's Health Protection Act. But we love to start our show with some pro-life inspiration. This week's comes from a recent article in Life News by Micaiah Bilger. Micaiah writes about a large family, something that seems to be endangered in our society today. The title of the article is Mom of 12 Kids Says Children Are a Blessing. Micaiah writes this, hearing children are a blessing is not as common as it used to be in society, but Iris Purnell says it proudly as the mother of 12 children ranging in age from three to 17. Fox News recently interviewed the Los Angeles mother after the family's dance videos on TikTok began going viral. Her husband, Cordell Storm Purnell, is a professional dancer. Iris Purnell said raising a big family and being a stay-at-home mom was, were not dreams growing up, but God had other plans for her life, and now she feels incredibly blessed. I feel like children are a blessing, she told Fox News, and if it's a blessing, then who am I to stop it? A few years into their marriage, Purnell said she began to feel that something was not right and she felt unhappy a lot. Then in 2006, she became a Christian, according to the report. I found a new life and a new meaning of purpose, she said of her Christian faith. Purnell told Fox News, that's when I was like, you know what? If God wants me to have this many children, then I'll have as many children as he deems for me to have. So that's how we ended up having 12. She gave birth to her first child, a son in 2004, and her last in 2019. She and her husband have seven sons and five daughters, and Iris would have more children if she could have. With some of her children, she struggled with postpartum depression and had several emergency C-sections, but Purnell said God helped her through each situation. She quoted Psalms 127.3, which states, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. I sincerely enjoy raising my children, she said. I love getting them ready for school, taking their clothes out, doing their hair, 
and making them feel comfortable and look beautiful. Her husband Cordell praised her for her love and dedication to her children. She always wanted to be a teacher, so this is a great purpose, he told Fox News. And as a mom, I think she takes on the role of being a teacher, being a caregiver. When I met her, she was in nursing school, so she gets to fulfill all of those. I, I just think this family is so beautifully countercultural, showing us that the gift of life and the blessing of children is something to be treasured and sought after. I mean, it's not easy to be a parent. We all know that. It's certainly not easy to parent a large family, but the sacrifices that are made are nothing compared to the many intangible blessings that come from family life. As John F. Kennedy said, children are the world's most valuable resource and its best hope for the future. So let us all welcome the children. Maria? That was so beautiful, Bonnie. Thank you so much. The following is from a fact sheet from National Right to Life about the so-called Women's Health Protection Act. This bill would enshrine into law abortion on demand and would overturn existing pro-life laws and prevent new protective laws from being enacted at the state and federal levels. This bill seeks to strip away from elected lawmakers the ability to provide even the most minimal protections for unborn children at any stage of their prenatal development. The bill has been introduced in the U.S. Congress by pro-abortion representatives and senators since 2013. The WHPA would invalidate nearly all existing state limitations on abortion and prohibit states from adopting new limitations in the future, including various types of laws specifically upheld as constitutionally permissible by the U.S. Supreme Court. The WHPA would invalidate most previously enacted federal limits on abortion, including federal conscience protection laws, and most, if not all, limits on government funding of abortion. The WHPA would invalidate state laws on elective abortion after 20 weeks, laws that are supported by sizable majorities nationwide. These abortions occur past the point at which unborn children can experience pain. Additionally, the WHPA would invalidate state laws limiting abortion even after viability, unless they allow each abortionist to abort based on his assertion that an abortion will preserve emotional health. The WHPA would invalidate state laws to provide women with specific information on their unborn child, informed consent requirements before receiving an abortion, including the providing of information about whether her child can feel pain, the ability to view her unborn child on an ultrasound or hear her baby's heartbeat, the providing of information about fetal development, information that a medication abortion can possibly be reversed, and even information regarding legal responsibilities of biological fathers to provide economic support if she decides to carry her child to term. Obviously, the so-called Women's Health Protection Act is no good for women in America. Bonnie. Such a dangerous piece of legislation, Maria. Thank you so much for that update. Well, I am delighted to introduce today's guest. It is truly an honor. Star Parker is one of the names mentioned on the shortlist when anyone speaks of national Black conservative leaders. She is the founder and president of the Center for Urban Renewal and Education, known as CURE, a public policy think tank that promotes market-based solutions to fight poverty. 
Parker founded CURE in 1995 to bring new ideas to policy discussions on how to transition America's poor from government dependency to self-sufficiency. She serves on the board of directors for the Leadership Institute and the National Religious Broadcasters, as well as NRB's executive committee. She's the host of Cure America with Star Parker, a weekly news digest airing on NRB and the TCT network. Star has addressed more than 250 colleges and universities about anti-poverty initiatives, has authored several books, is a regular commentator on national television and radio networks, and is a nationally syndicated columnist with Creators Syndicate. She also regularly consults with both federal and state legislators on how to best fix our nation's most distressed communities, including joining the White House Opportunity Initiative Advisory Team in 2017, appointment by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to the U.S. Frederick Douglass Bicentennial Commission in 2018, and appointment by President Trump to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights California Advisory Committee in 2020. She is a very busy lady, and we are so happy she has taken time out of her schedule to join us today. Star, we, we'd like to welcome you. I think you might still be on mute if you want to unmute yourself, because we want to hear everything you have to say today. There we go. All right. Okay. Welcome, Star. Well, thank you. I can't think of a more important topic or use of my time. Uh, so I really appreciate you inviting me to share with your audience uh, today my story and what we as a society need to think about as we move into a pro-life culture and country. Absolutely. Well, you do have a very compelling personal story, one, one of brokenness, conversion, redemption, and empowerment. And involves the, the effects that many, something that affects a lot of Americans, and that is abortion. So I'm wondering if you could tell us about your journey. A lot of Americans, oh yeah. When you think about 68 plus million dead babies, potential human, uh, you're talking maybe 40 million women, 30 million men. Many of them don't even know uh, the grandparents the siblings, the families, we are in a very, very difficult position as people. So I look very forward to telling my story as often as I can to let people know that what we've been doing for the last 50 years is unacceptable to God. And many people, as a result of those laws that we have passed, the attitudes of those that say it doesn't matter, it's just a choice, have hurt people when they start trying to make life's decisions very young. Now, when I was very young, I already had gotten caught up in all of the lies of the left. I heard them all the time, how my problems were somebody else's fault, how America was so racist, I didn't need to mainstream, how I was poor because others were wealthy. And you continue to hear this story without a moral compass or thread, the influence of religion and or church life to counter those discussions, you start to believe it's true and you start making choices accordingly. So by the time I was 14, I was already involved in criminal activity. By the time I was 16, I was involved in drug activity. By the time I was 19, I had been in and out of abortion clinic after clinic. It wasn't until the fourth time that I went into one of their so-called safe legal rare clinics that I had a gut instinct way down deep inside that there just must be something wrong with killing your offspring. 
I didn't stop my sexual promiscuous lifestyle. So I was pregnant again within a very short period of time, but I knew that I wasn't going to board again. And that's when I went on welfare to raise that child. And it wasn't until after a Christian conversion that people confronted my life patterns and told me that God was not mad at me, that he had come to redeem me, that he loved me and he had died for me, that I was able to make good choices because I became born again. And so part of those good new choices were to finish college, get a degree, start a business. And after my business was destroyed during the 1992 Rodney King riots, uh, I started really focusing on social policy and what had broken down in our society. And I just wanted to spend the rest of my life trying to fix it. And, and you have done a tremendous job in addressing that very crucial problem. What do you think is the biggest challenge to reaching people of color with the pro-life message? When we say people of color, it depends on which color group you're discussing. Uh, when you think about some of our uh, more <laughs> ethnic groups in the country where you see family intact, where you see Christian faith intact, uh, we're not realizing the same impact of abortion that we do on the African-American community that journeyed into this live from the left and Planned Parenthood's lure uh, of them into their clinics to kill their offspring. So if we look only at the black community, we're going to see a real tragedy. We're going to see that this community that was able to endure slavery and Jim Crow then got caught up on a welfare state and political promises. And what comes with big government and political promises is secularism and bad choices. And when you think about what has now broken down five years after King's death, you had Roe v. Wade as national law. Up until King's death, when you think about and look at the data of what was happening in black family life, you had 78% of husbands married to the mother of their children. Fast forward after the targeted Planned Parenthood on this very vulnerable community, we're not only looking at 20 million potential lives, dead babies now, a broken down sexual safeguard, and now marriage has totally collapsed to where only 30% of black adults are married. And the challenge with breaking down family life, even if you go to church every Sunday and sing gospel music, the challenge with breaking down family life is there is not that thread of consistency in values. There is not that thread of tradition. There are not husbands in the home with the mom to channel the sexual energies of the girls and the sexual energies of the boys to put that energy in sports and or school. And now it ends up instead in the streets. What would you say to a pregnant woman who is considering abortion? that motherhood is wonderful and we just heard about that that you're going to be a mom and 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 this is a beautiful title for you uh we, we you know we as a society kind of bought into a lie and the challenge that we're having in the pro-life community is our message is so inconsistent even post Dobbs. i mean when we tell people that you know we're going to now allow it up to voters to decide if this is human growing in the womb this woman is just wondering well wait a minute if if it doesn't matter what i do just whether i do it at six weeks nine weeks or 12 weeks uh, then she can stay very, very lost. So what I would tell her is to ignore all the rhetoric of the political discussions and go down deep inside and say that if this is human, then why would I kill my own 
legacy. And that it's a beautiful thing. It's not always easy. Uh, you may have to make some choices uh, of adoption. You may have to make choices of, of, of allowing for others to enter into your life to help you recover your life. You're going to have evenings of, of a lot of doubts, um, but motherhood is a beautiful thing. One of the things that happened to me as a result of going through even all of the bad choices I was making and then uh, having all of those abortions, I kept that one child and she now has birthed two children in marriage, 20 years married, and my two grandchildren are the most amazing people. So what we need to start talking to pregnant moms about is the fact that you can one day be a grandma and then a great grandma, and these are good things. What are some of the factors that you think drive women to abort? Well, there are a variety of factors, and that's one of the reasons that the pro-life community should be consistent uh, with their messaging. I think that one of the mistakes made during the last 50 years of struggling through abortion uh, legal in our society is that we, we, we changed what we were trying to do. We were anti-abortion. We weren't pro-life. And so in doing the pro-life move, uh, it, you get a little bit off track to where we should be going and what decisions should be made. We were against abortion. During slavery, they didn't start saying we're pro-liberty. Uh, it was always against slavery. Uh, and even though it's confrontational and people wanted it softer, um, it's we're against abortion. And so what's happening now that is in the states is it's very difficult to make the case in the states because if it's human, if there is a person with distinct characteristics and uniqueness that God has said in his word, we have, even before you born, I knew you, I saw you in that womb, then um, we've made some mistakes along the way. So it's really then hard to, um, you know, get ourselves back on track so that as a society, uh, we make abortion, like one pro-life group says, not just illegal, but unthinkable. Star, I, I want to ask you about your organization, but before I do that, I'd like to circle back to something we talked about previously, and that is the African-American community. Um, and a lot of people are just seem to be unaware of what we call the Black genocide um, and the roots in Margaret Sanger. Um, can you discuss that a little bit? Well, Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist, and she definitely wanted to annihilate a community of people that she thought were uh, human weeds. Uh, there are still those philosophies. You hear them often in the uh, environmental community, um, those that are promoting climate change and environmentalism that will say that we're going to run out of resources so the poor should be, kill their offspring uh, so that the rest of us can have abundance. Uh, and Margaret Sanger was one such person in her belief. So she began to target the black community through its pastors and others uh, to convince people that poverty can be alleviated if you don't have so many children. And over time, people bought into this idea. It's one of the reasons I don't call it genocide because you know people can market you something and you don't necessarily buy it. The challenge for blacks and the reason that so many began to buy it is because it was so, we were as a community of people so disproportionately poor. Uh, but we, there were never, there was never this insistence in our society and in our community that we would kill our offspring to not be poor. But when you think about the journey of America during that time that Margaret Sanger was able to embed her messaging into the black community, we as a society were becoming unraveled. Uh, you think about the scrubbing of our schools from any mention of God, the taking the Pledge of Allegiance, to having a feminist movement that the whole uh, 
those upper middle class thought that marriage was no longer important. Then you have a welfare state that says, hey, don't worry about any natural consequences that may come from you uh, not leaving your sexual choices in and passions inside of marriage. We now have these safety nets. We'll help you out. You can be as promiscuous as men. We don't need these guardrails anymore. And as a result, uh, the most poorest, the most vulnerable got caught up in that. And therefore you have uh, today where people are just totally um, reckless in their sexual choices and passions. Yes, and let, let's talk about Cure. I'd like to know how you started it, um, why you started it, and some of the ways that Cure is making an impact. Well, the why I started it is because after uh, my journey and then into social policy, uh, I began to consult on federal welfare reform. And after the success of federal welfare reform, us as a nation saying what we shouldn't do, we had a cancer in our society and it needed to be uh, removed. And so we put time limits and, and um, work requirements into federal law. But what we didn't do is say, well, what should people be thinking about? Because keep in mind, during that time, uh, 30 years into this welfare dynamic that the government took charge of charity, uh, there was no personal responsibility attached to it. So you began generation after generation thinking that you don't have to make choices that will build you a future. Uncle Sam will uh, do that for you. So I began cure so that we can be get the pastors thinking about charity, thinking about their role in making sure that they're there uh, for people in need. One of the biggest damages of the welfare state is that this one-size-fits-all model would never work, and it, especially uh, when it's a government model, uh, business that they shouldn't be doing. Charity belongs to church and God's people because people are uniquely made. Their challenges are unique to that individual. So the church has a big role in making sure that they identify what that person's uh, personal need is. You know, scripture talks about how some men need compassion, but others need thrust out. Well, this is not something that you can do in a one-size-fits-all model that says don't work, don't save, don't get married. So I began Cure so that we would begin to focus on well, what should we be as a society be looking forward to? What should we be doing in healthcare? Is a good, is a government model good for all people? Or, you know, socialized medicine, one size fits all when we have unique health problems? I answer no. Education, is it really a good idea to throw all kinds of kids in the same classroom and try to think that you can come up with some one size fits all curriculum? No. Is it a good idea to force our poor people to live in, in housing projects and neighborhoods and zip codes where they're disproportionately single women trying to raise boys and girls? No. And then on the economic stability, I mean, we want all government removed um, from trying to make people's choices when it comes to where they should work, how they should work, how much they should get paid, how they build their business, and et cetera, et cetera. So that's why I started Cure. We call it HeHe -He here at Cure. Healthcare, education, housing and economic stability and so that people will flourish. We work in Washington, D.C. to change laws so that people can change their lives. And you talked previously about making abortion unthinkable. How, how do we go about doing that? What's your advice for us? Well, I think we should, as a society, follow the model of when this question of humanity was on the table before and what we went through uh, during slavery. It's the same question, <laughs> humanity. It's, you, should, you, should, should someone be considered property? So we should look at that model uh, and, and, and endure through. I mean, it didn't work in the states, and we know that, and it's really interesting to see how the outcome is going to end up right back here in Washington, D.C., as you just talked about uh, through some of the, the languaging of the left to try to codify abortion national law. And so 
now the right is trying to say, okay, how do we do that when we just said it's such a good idea to be in the States? So what I would do is just look at that model. First of all, one of the things that we did not do uh, when 4 million former slaves were now free people written into uh, a constitution, adopted into the family of America, and most of the family didn't want them adopted there. What did we not have? We didn't have the, the, the social services in the private sector set up for this type of, uh, of, of environment. This is an environment of slaves that are now free people. Thank God that as a pro-life community, we're one step into providing that help with our pregnancy care centers. You know, you mentioned in the introduction that I've been on 200 colleges. Well, I've been on 300 pregnancy care center banquet um, platforms so that they can raise the resources they need so that they can then help those that are most vulnerable coming in because then they can look at that individual uniquely and say, this one needs this, this one needs that, this one needs this over here so that we can now put them into society as healthy people. We're facing 40 million women who are post-aborted. This is not gonna be a healthy environment if we just leave them to their own vices and cry themselves to sleep every night. We have to look at it like many look at trauma and say there might be some healing that's necessary. It didn't happen during slavery and that's why the end result is four generations later, people are more angry um, because once you've been scarred, once you've been hurt over time, that's why I love Victor Frankl's book, um, In Search of Life's Meaning, uh, so that we can get that healing that's necessary. I think that that's the right track. I think that the other right track is to start being anti-abortion, period. We cannot move this through the individual states at different points of gestation. We've got to say abortion needs to be unthinkable. No one's thinking about enslaving people today, even though there is going on, especially in the sex um, trafficking, but they don't say it out loud. And these left-wingers have been, and progressives have been so emboldened to say out loud that we will kill those offspring all the way after even their, uh, the time of their, their, their birth. To allow parents this type of infanticide we need to be much more aggressive on the right to say, no, this is human. The minute we know it's human and that's it and force the society to have that discussion. Yeah, I'm reminded of, I just got a legislative alert from a major newspaper saying that a US Senate candidate had called abortion murder and that that was their alert. Well. Right. That's the truth of the matter. That's right. And if, you know? every, and if every candidate said that, and if every one of us said that, it would force the left to say that it's not. What are we doing if, you, if, if it's not murder? Now, are there different degrees of murder? Well, yeah, there are. But if you take a life, and that's what we're doing, and now we're arguing on their stage to try to protect the innocent, those that God calls his reward at different levels. This is not a good uh, place to be and it certainly won't have a good outcome because as you're saying, now they're pressuring senators who do, uh, and, and potential candidates who do not have the language because we are inconsistent with language as a movement. This is something that is of urgency because we have an election in November. And if the language is, isn't there, that it's just one stop. Yes, we are moving toward a, 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 a pro-life, no abortion society. What is wrong with us saying that? Why are we pretending that, no, 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 we're not trying to end abortion. No, 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 Dobbs didn't end abortion. No, it didn't, and we should be sad. 
We got it. We got row overturned, but we need to demand an unthinkable environment. So they're right. We are moving toward that. And so for our candidates to be timid to even say it out loud means that we have not given them enough strength, encouragement, backup, and, and insight into where we are really going. Star Parker, thank you so much. You're so very welcome. I hope to be with you again, and I hope to celebrate with you when we have abortion outside of our society. Absolutely. And remember, there's always a reason to choose life. That's right.